following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, let's open our Bibles to Philippians 3 together, please. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 8 start out. But a good big good morning to those who are at home. Uh, we miss you and love you, wish you were here. We're praying for you, and if you don't know what I'm looking at, look at the camera in the back, everybody else. Um, but uh, on live stream, we miss you guys, and we will look forward to your return soon. Um, Philippians 3, while you're turning there, let me give you a few announcements. First, I just want to remind you guys about that prayer time that we spend between the services. Uh, up here up front, around 1035, if you're, you're in the second service, we do it after the first service and before the second so that we can have a chance to come together. We're praying for the Riau Malayu people. If you don't know... Uh, one who has been sent out by us, Jared Kessner, his wife Sharon, and their children live there in Indonesia and are working as missionaries for the proclamation of Christ there amongst the Riau Malayu people. So we just try to gather every week between services to pray for them. We recognize that not everyone can make it each time. That's okay. We'd love for you to join with us, whether that's in your own time or together with the saints. As both, we pray that God would reach to each part of the globe for the sake of his name being proclaimed and that he would grow faith in us that we would grow as Christians, loving and trusting him as we learn to pray. Uh, second, just a reminder about core training sessions on Thursday nights here at the building. Uh, a few of our men have been leading us in a brief study on the fear of man. Uh, it's been very helpful. My goodness. I, I don't know if you're like me, but um, you get old enough in your life and you realize that you're just not as awesome as you want to be and as you portray yourself to be, and you realize eventually that you're going to be found out. <laughs> and that creates a lot of anxiety and fear, uh, fear of being rejected or exposed or any of these things. Um, this session has been really helpful. We've had two men that have already taught, and uh, we'll have two more still in the end of July. So there's Thursday nights here at 7 o'clock teaching us to fear God properly and recognize these sinful habits that we take on that are not Godward directed, but rather directed at man. So again, that's on Thursday nights here at the building, or you can catch it online if you just can't make it out, understand. And lastly, speaking of catching things online, starting the first Sunday in September, we will not be broadcasting a live stream of our Sunday services any longer. Uh, so that means that on August 29th will be the last time that we put that on YouTube, our services. Uh, we've been offering that live stream for quite a while now. And those of you that watch know that our production quality is pretty low. Um, but we've not been trying to make some sort of awesome media presentation. We've been trying to make an opportunity to fill in a gap where there's the midst of emergency or crisis. Um, and by God's grace, and although we're not all wise, we do not know everything, we're thankful for the relative healthiness of our congregation through this pandemic. Um, that being said, we realize that many of you have friends, uh, maybe even family members who've been touched deeply by uh, COVID-19, so we don't take it lightly. But we're thankful and we recognize that our safety and our health and just getting some content each week is not enough. We need to be built up in our whole man. And so we want to make sure that we are spending that time well here. Um, we don't need to create content that will help you to be personally growing with God, although that's per certainly part of it. What we need is to be built together as we assemble, as we continue to confront one another about our sin, to comfort one another, to serve one another, et cetera, et cetera. All these things that Christ has called us to do as a body of Christ. And so just letting you know, uh, if you're a member at Cornerstone and you're, and you're online right now, you already know this. Uh, most of those that have been members at, are members at Cornerstone that haven't been attending, we've reached out to them to make sure that they understand this. We're, they're not, we're not dropping on them right now as though this is the first time. Uh, but those of you that are uh, not members or maybe are attending, uh, we would welcome you to come and join us here in person. Um, we believe that this is the most beneficial thing for you. If you know anything about the internet and, and Christianity in general, the truth is there's just a lot better preachers than me. There's a lot better stuff out there than this. What we can, in a sense, offer by God's grace alone is the same that other local churches can offer as well. So if you're here in our area, come join and be part of what God is doing. If you're out of the area, maybe I've, I've heard from some that are out of state, maybe even out of country, um, go and get involved in a local church where you're at, where you can experience the love of Christ in real people, not just online, uh, but real people and be under good pastoral care for your souls and that you can also give out to. So 
With that said, I just want you to understand that that won't happen right away. Uh, September 5th will be the first day that we stop doing a broadcast or live stream of our services. If you have any questions, please feel free to come talk to me or Jordan or Nathan or um, John as we would love to talk about this together. Okay, all that out of the way, let's go ahead and look at our text this morning and then we'll pray. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. This is God's word. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let's pray together. God, we come to you asking simply that you would change us to be more like Jesus. Would you work repentance and faith in our hearts? Lord, would you use the proclamation of your word to do what you have called us to do? We thank you for your grace and ask you to richly bless us in Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Now, what if I told you that I could somehow make a way for you to lose weight, to lower your blood pressure, to uh, reduce your uh, cholesterol, uh, to find a way to boost your brain function, to give you better sleep at night, and even potentially fight cancer. I mean, all of you would be like, wow, this is a great self-help seminar. What am I supposed to do about all of this? Uh, don't take my word for it. Um, this is coming from doctors that are telling us this, but not only doctors, also the stars, the famous people. Uh, I was looking this up, and several different famous people, Hugh Jackman, Beyonce, uh, Nicole Kidman, uh, J-Lo, these people are all about intermittent fasting, something that will apparently change your life. I and mean, this is a big deal. Um, just reminding you, I am not a physical fitness guru, and I am not your uh, doctor, um, but I am, by God's grace, shepherd, trying to faithfully show you and guide you through this life and into eternity. So, we're talking about fasting. This morning, we want to come to this topic and consider together the idea and practice of fasting. We're going to consider Christian fasting. I'm, I'm not sure if any of you are into fasting, uh, but it's, at least for me, something that I don't hear us talk about very often. I tried to think about this. I don't think, and it may be true, but I can't think of a, a sermon that I grew up hearing about fasting. Um, it's, it's something that I just don't hear about very often. Um, and if you're visiting with us, this is kind of a little bit out of the norm for us. What I'm trying to do this morning is present a topical sermon. Normally, we are going through the scriptures uh, page by page, verse by verse, expositing the scriptures. We just finished up in the book of Obadiah, his prophecy in detail. In a few weeks, our elders will be taking us through uh, a few of the miracles of Jesus through the Gospels. We're looking forward to that. But today, I just want to take a minute and help us <coughs> excuse me, by thinking through this in a topical way. It's good for us to be working through the Scriptures, a steady diet of allowing the Scriptures to tell us what it has for us and then for us to apply it. But this morning, we're going to come out a different way and ask a question of it, which is also a right thing to do. Uh, and for us to find answers in the scriptures. We want to start with some questions and see what the Bible has to say then about fasting. Now, I started in Philippians 3, 7, because it's going to give us a proper foundation for what we're about to talk, to, uh, talk about today. It really gives us the first and greatest commandment with detail in a Christian context. What I mean by that is, since Christ has come, lived, died, ascended to the right hand of the Father, what does it look like for me and you to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind? Well, Paul tells us that it shows itself in desires and affections for Christ above other things. It's really a proper perspective on value, about what things actually matter. Um, it shows us the worthless nature of all things, but most specifically, actually the, the idea and the nature of good works in light of the all-surpassing worth of knowing Christ. This is our foundation. This is what we're working from today. It's not irrelevant. It's not like a, a food for thought and then hopefully you can somehow bring it up later. We're going to come back to this by the end of the sermon. Because if we don't, a discussion on Christian fasting or any other good Christian discipline will veer off the tracks and plunge into some sort of works-based righteousness. We talked heavily about this last week. 
that we must be motivated and empowered, not by ourselves talking ourselves up or pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by Christ and the grace of God alone. So with that in mind, and this passage rattling around in our brains, uh, let's talk about what it means to fast. Now, I googled fast definition to try to figure out what everyone else was thinking about this and how people were defining it. And this is what I saw. Moving or capable of moving at high speed fast. Now, so I, I, I get it. I probably should have been a little bit more specific about this. Like, like using a sentence, you know, Chris is not fast. He is slow. So like, I understand this. And I changed a little bit and I said fasting definition. What does that mean? I finally got something I thought might be a little bit more helpful. To abstain from all or some kinds of food and drink, especially as a religious observance. So that sounded a little more like of what I, I was expecting to hear. Some of us might be somewhat familiar with fasting, although probably we think about it in some sort of ancient ascetic practice where very religious people did this in some way because they thought it was really important. Uh, or it could just be like the rest of us. We've heard the, the term thrown around a lot, intermittent fasting, that it's, it's good for you. Uh, for some reason, we, we, we believe it. Uh, we're talking, though, about going without food or going without something for a certain length of time. So some people do it uh, like a fast from sweets. Some people fast from technology or media for a certain amount of time. Some people uh, fast from certain activities. And almost always, there's some sort of meaning along with that fast, right? I mean, it's not just that you stop eating or stop doing those things for no reason or else you're just going hungry and not doing stuff. That, that's all that is. Yes, it can be religious, but as I talked about from the opening comments, the most popular reasons to fast seem to be weight loss and some sort of health benefit. Other, others, though, through the years have fasted even for political reasons. Probably the most famous of these uh, maybe you may not know this name, but you've almost surely seen the picture of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, he's known as the father of the nation of uh, India. You've probably seen like a black and white picture of him. He's kind of sitting cross-legged. He has like a white wrap around him. He has a bald head and uh, wire rim glasses. Um, he uh, was famous for fasting because he used it, in a sense, as a political weapon. What he would do is, if, during the, uh, the freedom movement in India, he held 18 different personal fasts that he proclaimed that he was going to do, the longest of which was 21 days. Now, what he was trying to do here was affect change within the country. And the truth is, they were very effective, not with God, but with man. The simple act of fasting, uh, really, which was a hunger strike, produced political results that still have their mark on India today. If we have been around the English language then for any time, we recognize that when we use the word fast, we're talking about going without something for a certain reason for a certain amount of time. But if this is true, if we use this in all kinds of different contexts, why in the world am I talking about it here to those who have joined together to worship Jesus Christ, who has risen from the grave? I'm guessing, again, for most of us, we've heard something about it, and maybe even we think it's a good idea to, to fast, but we just maybe haven't gotten around to it. Maybe it just hasn't been that big of a deal. Uh, I can see why that's true also in a sense because specifically the Bible doesn't tell us thou shalt fast. We don't see it written as something that we're regularly trying to engage in. So I'm guessing for most of us that this is kind of how we think about it. Today, then, I'd like us to consider the topic of Christian fasting. You probably know this, but fasting takes discipline, it takes effort, uh, and it takes thinking. But by itself, it is not a means of grace. You and I would recognize that. We know that just not eating doesn't make us more holy. Not eating doesn't somehow merit us righteousness. The closest thing that we have in the scriptures to this idea is probably found in Leviticus 16 and 23. He doesn't say thou shalt fast. He does say, in reference to the Day of Atonement, God's people are commanded to afflict themselves or humble themselves or deny themselves. Uh, a, a lot of Jewish writers talk about that most likely this is some sort of fast. But again, it's not overly explicit. It's not used the same way that we see the rest throughout Scripture, which we'll get to. In other words, there's nothing inherently righteous about not eating. Rather, the act of not eating is both a Godward response to a specific situation in our lives or even a test of one's own hunger for God. So hear me say that again about fasting. Christian fasting is both a Godward response 
to a specific situation, or it can also be a testing of one's hunger for God. It's really a proper reaction or a correct posture before God. It accompanies a life of humility, godliness, and seeing oneself properly before an all-knowing, sovereign God. It means that it should be done then when an occasion arises. You've probably heard this idea of it being an ad hoc activity. All that means is that it's only done when it's necessary. When it comes up as something you realize that we should devote prayer and fasting to. There are some uh, throughout the Bible that schedule their fasts. We see this especially when we get to the New Testament. If you remember, even we're going to get there today in Matthew 9, we've got uh, the disciples of John the Baptist. And we've got the Pharisees who say that they schedule fasts like usually twice a week. It's a normal practice for them. In that way, it's developed kind of a, a great deal from where it started, but as a way to long after and pursue God. What I want us to do then for today to start things out is I want you and I to look at the Old Testament and kind of understand how it talks about fasting. That's going to be really important because when we get to the New Testament, something's going to happen. We'll get there as, as time goes on. Let's start, though, by considering the Old Testament and what it is and what it's saying about fasting. The Hebrew word for fast is tzom or tzom. Its technical definition is pretty interesting. It just simply means to fast. Or it means an action of lamentation or mourning in some way. So we're really talking an action of grief and lament is probably the best way to describe fasting in the ancient world. Whether they're believers or pagan, uh, it's, it's used with, uh, within several different cultures, not just within Judaism. 1 Samuel 31.13 tells us that after King Saul was killed, his men buried him, and then they fasted for seven days. Uh, then we start in 2 Samuel, and we see the same thing happen in 2 Samuel 1.12. David and his household mourn and fast after Saul's death. It was a normal reaction of sorrow and grief and lament, a sadness. But there was not only that. I think probably the greatest picture of early godly fasting was actually from King David. Now, I want you to turn there. Let's turn to 2 Samuel 12, verses 15 through 23. 2 Samuel 12. You know this situation. It's after the, the sin of David and Bathsheba, and Bathsheba has a child. Uh, and we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Something happens here that's really awful because God has, uh, has, has actually had this child be afflicted, and you'll see it. Let's start in verse 15, 2 Samuel 12, 15 through 23. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that, he is, that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do some harm to himself. But, then David, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed, and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that, he, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In this passage, David actually seems to take the current idea of what fasting is all about, mourning and lament and sorrow, and turn it completely on its head. Instead of fasting as lament, which would have been right and good, he fasts almost as an exclamation point on his prayer and petition to God. Uh, it's an amazing passage that helps us see godly fasting separate from the normal grief-stricken fasting that the world does. 
It's not to say that mourning and sorrow should not be accompanied with fasting, but he is just taking this completely and making it into a new mold. It's not only here. The words actually first appear in the Bible in Judges 20. You don't have to, if you want to look there, you can, but let me explain the situation in Judges. After the people of Israel had lost 18,000 soldiers to the tribe of Benjamin, they responded in weeping, fasting, and offerings. Listen to Judges 20, 26. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. From the very first sentence here, uh, the first word on this idea is that it's a reaction to terrible loss. It's grief, but it's more than that. It's also in this sentence, in this sense, a proper posture before God as one longs for him to answer. The people of Israel grieve the loss of this man, but they also seek God for guidance as they fast. Verse 27 says that the Lord, I'm sorry, that the people inquired of the Lord. So what we're seeing is that this idea of fasting is not in and of itself some sort of thing that we'll go do all the time. We see it actually associated with the need for God to answer, with calling on him to help, pleading. This seems to be an association. What they do is their whole, not only inward parts, their, their soul and their mind in a sense, but even their body gets involved and says, Lord, I need you. Even the going without food, that I need you for all of my life. Think about Ezra 8. Ezra calls the people to join him in a fast as they prepare for the journey back to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember, they're in captivity, but Ezra is, 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 uh, is leading the people back. Listen to how he talks about fasting. Ezra 8.21, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to, th to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. The people of God seek God through prayer and fasting. This is a posture of humility, asking God to work. This wasn't an expression of grief only. It was a way to approach God in humility and earnest expectation that he would act. Fasting, then, here is actually about seeking God with one's whole body. And as you can already see, this is not always an individual thing. Many times throughout the Old Testament, a leader would call a corporate fast for people to join in some type of assembly even, or simply engage in this activity as they go about their lives as an act of humble solidarity before God, asking him to do his work. We see this clearly, if you remember, in the book of Esther. In Esther 4, she requests that all the Jews would fast for three days, as she will, as she prepares to speak to the king about the plight of the Jews, as there is a plot to kill all of them. So together, the Jews fast and seek the Lord that he would act on their behalf. There's another aspect of fasting that I think we need to recognize. It has to do with um, the act, I'm sorry, the, it has to do with our response to a heart of sin when we are convicted. For instance, Nehemiah calls the people to fast when he realizes that the walls and the city of Jerusalem are in shambles and the people have not kept it, not taking care of it. He calls them to do this and fast and pray that God would empower them to do this. He, they recognize their sin and want to do what is right. Joel, the prophet, calls the people to fast as he calls them out of their wickedness, out of their own insincerity, their love for themselves, and non-obedience to God. He calls them to fast, proclaiming a fast of confession, mourning, and humility before God, recognizing that they need his forgiveness and his empowerment for them to live rightly. Even uh, non-Jewish people, think about the book of Jonah. Nineveh, right? The people of Nineveh in Jonah 3 understand their sinful problem before Yahweh. Listen to how they respond to Jonah's message about the wrath of God that's coming against their sin. This is Jonah 3, 5 through 9. And the people of Nineveh believed God. That's a very important starting point. The people of Nineveh believed God. 
They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is on his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, these guys go further than normal fasting. Not only is it like the people fasting, they're like, hey, let's get the animals involved in this. They're not allowed to eat anything either. We want everyone to understand that we need this God. We need him to forgive us for our sin. In some way, they recognize this and engage in this fast. Uh, what we're seeing then is the Old Testament is showing us that fasting is an action that evidences true humility and repentance that sees itself properly before God. Fasting seems to help a person or a nation express grief and lament. And it's a way to engage the whole person in sincerely and earnestly seeking God for guidance, help, and protection. Now, before we leave the Old Testament, I want to talk about two more things. First, let's talk about false fasting, empty fasting. Last week, we talked about our own struggle to do good works by the power of the grace of God, how often we put our own power in there and don't trust God. Sometimes if we want to keep it up, of course, we still do good works, right? But by our own power. And we often uh, know that these good works really are ungodly. They really are filthy rags. They really are kind of more unto men than they are unto God. And the way that we can tell that so easily is when we look around the rest of our life. We recognize that the rest of our life is not congruent with what we say to be true about God. It's so in line with what these guys have been, have been teaching us when we're talking about the fear of man. They're not concerned about what God, we, I'm saying me, we are not concerned ultimately often what God has to say about it, but to make sure that everyone else thinks that we're doing the right things. Isaiah talks about this very thing in concern with fasting. He points out that they fast. Oh, they fast. They don't eat. They definitely do the right things as far as getting it done. Like they're, they're fasting. But then they also, in Isaiah 58, we're seeing that he condemns them for false fasting. They fast, but then they oppress their workers. They fast, but then they also quarrel and are violent within, within one another. So we understand that from this and other places that fasting isn't the end result. That's not the most important thing. I mean that fasting is not the fruit of our own holiness, like that's the pinnacle somehow. Fasting accompanies a humble posture toward God and man. It should always result in holy living. I'm not saying perfect living. Praise God that we constantly are given the gift of repentance and that he forgives and makes us progressively more like Christ. I'm not saying we're perfect but I am saying that we are living holy lives. Isaiah points out that it should never be something that we can't point to and say, oh yes, this is the fruit of my righteousness. This is what I do as I fast. He's saying, look upon the rest of you and see if your fasting is just religious practice in general, if it's not real. Therefore, it's possible, brothers and sisters, to partake in false Christian fasting and continue in a sinful lifestyle. Again, for more thoughts on that, keep talking to one another about last week's sermon on God's grace and our good works. It's a really good thing for us to continue to go back to. It's very easy for us to slip into some sort of self-based righteousness. There's one more thing I want you to see here before we leave the Old Testament. It's found in Zechariah 8. Up to this point, we have seen that fasting is marked by humility, mourning, sincerity, and approaching God for help and guidance. In one sense... It has this deep sense of sobriety, even in a sense of darkness, a longing for God to shine through and help those who are in trouble. This is right, but I want us to hear the final word about fasting from the Old Testament. It's pretty awesome that this is where it falls. I, I, I was kind of like juiced about this when I was reading through. I went through all the passages on fasting. And I couldn't believe it's the very last one. And this is how Zechariah leaves us. Let me read for you Zechariah 8, 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. Now listen to verse 19. In the context of fasting, think this through. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. You see how he's taking this, what we, what we know to be true about all of fasting, this lament and longing and darkness for God to do something, and he says that God will change it and turn it to joyful gladness and cheerful feasts. As Zechariah turns the corner from turning from judgment to now talking about restoration and salvation, we have a complete shift when it comes to fasting. Now, I'll admit that I, I haven't spent a ton of time in this passage, but frankly, I think it's fair to say that we are seeing Zechariah give God's people a new trajectory for their longing, a new situation that will not always be full of grief, but will experience God's blessing again. So their fasts will not only be about mourning, but will turn miraculously to joy and cheerfulness and gladness as God begins to answer their prayers. Again, we see this clearly that he brings us to fulfillment as God brings Judah back to Jerusalem, back to their land, and gives them a place again and turns their sorrow into joy. But brothers and sisters, I would suggest that there's more than just that going on here. I would say that there's actually further fulfillment in the future. I would suggest that Zechariah may be setting us up for something even more spectacular than a return to the land of Israel. I would suggest that this may even ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one true Messiah, the one who would turn our mourning, our longing into rejoicing, feasting with the Lamb. Now, this is a presentation of fasting from the Old Testament as we kind of think it through, and I think it's helpful for us to learn from and use. So we've been asking the question this whole lot of time. So that's kind of the survey of the Old Testament. We've been asking the question, what is fasting? And so far, our definition is something like this. Fasting is the act of not eating as a Godward response in a specific situation. We've learned that fasting is an expression of grief and an evidence of true humility before God and repentance before Him. And we find that this is a way to engage our whole person, inwardly and outwardly, in earnestly seeking God for His guidance and help. But this isn't the final word on fasting. I've just dealt with the Old Testament. This isn't the final word at all. Something has happened since the Old Testament was written. Something of far greater significance. Don't get me wrong. Fasting still occupies the same place as before. It is still a Godward response in a specific situation. But something has happened that changes our perspective. It's even in the name that we call ourselves, Christian. That little word, Christ also associated with the Messiah or the Anointed One. We are those who follow Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, Christ. Let's talk about then, not just fasting in general, in the Bible. I want to talk about Christian fasting. How is it different now that Christ has come, that He's shown Himself to be who He is, the Messiah has come? How does that change things from the way that the people in Nineveh or the people in the Old Testament fasted? What is Christian fasting about? Yes, I'm making a distinction here. Jesus Christ was born, lived, died, rose from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. This changes everything, including the way that we fast. How so? Let's think about it. In Matthew 9, so you can turn there if you want to. We're going to be there for the rest of our time probably. Matthew 9, John the Baptist's disciples come to talk to Jesus. John 9 I'm sorry, Matthew 9, 14 through 17. And a conversation uh, ensues and it explains what we're talking about here today and why it matters that we're talking about Christian fasting. Matthew 9, 14 through 17, let me read it for you. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth, unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and worse tear is made. 
Neither is, a, is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. In verse 14, the disciples of John the Baptist come and they ask Jesus' disciples why they don't fast like the rest of the Jews fast. It seems to be a good question, honestly. The Jews longed for Messiah to come. They fasted and prayed uh, about the terrible situation that they were in underneath current Roman occupation. Those who are devout and God-fearing were looking for Messiah to come. So the question is a good one. It's legitimate. Remember how Jesus was seen by the Jews around him, the other rabbis. They all fasted. But the way that they looked at Jesus, it seemed as he was constantly feasting. So much so, they called, um, yeah, if you remember John the Baptist, one who ate no bread and drank no wine. In other words, he was a faster. But then we see this in Luke 7.34, that the Son of Man, or Jesus, came eating and drinking. They even call him a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus doesn't seem to be one that's constantly fasting, but rather seems to be one who is feasting. Overall, people understood that Jesus and his disciples were not fasting. Jesus fasted, if you remember, at the beginning of his ministry for 40 days in the wilderness when the Spirit took him out there, at the very beginning. But it seems as though that fast was one of association. This is a whole different topic and wonderful one. But it's association and attesting that Jesus, true Israel, gets victory and does that which Israel could not do in their 40 years in the desert. And so we see this as a wonderful start. But after this time, we don't watch as Jesus and his disciples fast. So much so that he is known as one who feasts. They can even kind of rail him by saying he's a glutton and a drunkard. So we understand that Jesus isn't necessarily fasting since that time. We understand that the question that is being asked is a good one. So Jesus answers these disciples, the disciples of John the Baptist, with this question. Can the wedding guests mourn, important word, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Now what is Jesus talking about? We clearly understand from our little survey of the Old Testament that he's referring back to the question they asked about fasting. He's equating fasting and mourning here, about a posture of longing and mourning and pleading with God to work on our behalf. But what about the rest of the statement? He talks about a bridegroom. While the Old Testament has often represented the relationship between God and his people as a relationship between a husband and a wife. We see this uh, in the prophets over and over again, particularly in Ezekiel and Hosea. And the coming of the Messiah had been understood to represent the, the culmination of God's consummation with his people, that God and his people would be united when Messiah came. There would be fulfillment and joy at the wonderful promise of Messiah having come and joined with his people. In other words, Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm talking about me. I'm the bridegroom here. This is what Jesus is referring to. So in this very little statement, it's amazing. He is, he is showing us what fasting is about. He's saying it's about mourning and longing and grievous in one sense or another. But he's also telling us that he, Jesus of Nazareth, the former carpenter, now the rabbi, was not only, the, he was Messiah, the anointed one. He was the Christ. This blew their socks off. I mean, it, it had to be something that's, again, thought of as blasphemous. How could anyone say this? In this very statement, he is making the point that he, the bridegroom, has come. It's him. He's the Messiah. Thus, it didn't make any sense to mourn, to long for the one who would one day come be with his people if he was there in their presence. It didn't make any sense. What should wedding guests do if the bridegroom shows up? They should party and feast they should do that which is enjoyable while he is in their presence. Instead of fasting, there should be feasting. But Jesus goes on. The, the story doesn't end there. He goes on. His work is different than they expected, and probably, if we're honest, different than what we expected. He says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Yeah, so, so wait a second. You're saying, Jesus, like you're here, you're the Messiah, but you're going to be taken away? Yes, it's almost as though he's saying, make sure you go and read Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. Let me give you these words, Isaiah 53, 7. He, talk about the suffering servant of Israel, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, taken away. 
right? Led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus would not be doing what we thought he would be doing. He would be doing what he and the Father and the Spirit gloriously planned from the foundations of the earth. He would go to die. He would go to be risen again and ascend to the right hand of the Father. Then he would give us amazing, mind-blowing, his spirit to work and dwell in his people. Uh, The very presence of Christ, we see this over and over again in the New Testament, John 16, Romans 8, Galatians 5, and other places. He would go away, yes, but he would leave his spirit with us. We realize that he is going to prepare a place for us. And today, we stand in this position, waiting for him to return, waiting for the marriage supper of the Lamb to take place, waiting for him to come in fullness. But until then, we wait. We wait hopefully and faithfully. Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. After this, he, he, I can't miss this. We've we got to get this part. Um, he introduces these two little interesting parables, one about uh, unshrunk cloth and one about wineskins and wine. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. The patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, for the sake of time, I mean, I would love to preach this, and I probably will someday when we go through the book of Matthew together, but um, for the sake of time, I'm going to have to sum this up for us. Something new has happened. Don't miss this. The bridegroom is with you. Something new has happened. New wine, unshrunk cloth. He's taking and saying, something new, incredible, different from what it was before has happened. Messiah has come. So to live and fast in a way that mournfully longs for Messiah to come one day is incongruent with the reality that Jesus has come. Don't miss it, everyone who's listening to this. He's talking to them, saying, Messiah has come. And as he's thinking this through and kind of explaining to them, he's saying that to continue using the old system with the new happening, Jesus' advent, his coming and working, that would tear the old system apart and make it worthless. He's saying something's happened. The fulfillment of all the law and promises now has come true in Jesus. And he's saying to hold that to be true and to go back to Judaism as though it hasn't happened yet will tear the whole thing apart as if it was to go back in new wine that's going to ferment and uh, like a, what do you call it? bloat the, the wineskin up. If it's an old wineskin, it'll burst it and have a problem with both of those things. The old wineskins will burst with the new wine. The unshrunk uh, cloth that will receive the patch, will put it on the old stuff, will shrink and then make the tear even worse. It's saying that you cannot go back and hold to this old system and hold to Jesus Christ, the new thing, the Messiah who has come. He changes everything. And thus we see, especially in the New Testament, my goodness, especially in Acts and all throughout the epistles, the difficulty between them seeing Jesus and trying to place him in Judaism. Instead of seeing him as coming to finally do away, and not not abolish, but to fulfill the law and create a new thing in himself, the one new man that we learned about in Ephesians. This is what he is doing. And so for us to go back as though we're expecting Messiah to come, still practicing all the things that say Messiah is coming, doesn't make any sense. And so he is saying here very clearly that Judaism that we knew before has forever changed. The one who it was all about has come, not to abolish, but to fulfill the law. Jesus literally changed everything. Thus, the way the believer looks to Messiah must be the essential reality that shapes the way that we live. They must no longer pray and fast and long for Messiah to come as our forefathers did. Think about this. It's different. We're not waiting for someone to come redeem us. We're not waiting for someone to come give the Spirit. We're not waiting for someone to come and do away with Satan's sin and death. That has happened in this decisive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It is living, his dying, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He has done something that Jonah, Abraham, all the Old Testament saints could not have known. They tried to understand, 
But they were surprised. Even the disciples are surprised when Jesus does this, when he goes to the cross and accomplishes salvation for us. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. He forever stopped Satan's sin and death and gave us the down payment of the fulfillment of all of his precious promises. Not only in general, but if you remember by the time we get to the end of Philippians 3, that what we are looking forward to is the resurrection of our own bodies. In Matthew 9, Jesus isn't changing all fasting. It's not what he's doing. He's changing the fasting that is born out of a longing cry for Messiah to come. He's giving us a right perspective and a longing for the right things. Think about this. Messiah has come. He's worked and he's gone away again. So, so again, the question is, are we back in the same place? No, that's the whole point of him bringing up those pieces and understanding that unshrunk cloth parable or the new wine and the old wineskins. We're not the same as those that were in the Old Testament. We have this truth that Messiah has come and now sits at the right hand of the Father, ever pleading for us. All of Hebrews, he, he does it all for us. And we stand now knowing that this is true. Messiah came and worked, and then he went away again. Again, we ask that question, so are we back in the same place? No. The new age has dawned. He's given us his Holy Spirit, and we know that he is coming again. Now, we fast, not as those who haven't seen the promise come true, but as those who have seen the promise fulfilled over and over again. We are a people of hope in a historic salvation that God has worked and continues to do so. Our, our redemption is accomplished and it is being applied. And one day, he, it will be finalized when he returns to consummate this kingdom. Thus, Christian fasting is both the same and different from our forefathers before Jesus Christ. In a sense, our fasting, our mourning, has been turned, like Zechariah says, to feasting to joy and gladness in Messiah. Therefore, I assume then that you would agree with me that fasting is now informed by the reality that Jesus has come and this changes our fasting. We joyfully fast and pray that he would return soon with the same earnestness, but not in the same way as our forefathers did. Yes, we should fast as Christians, even today. And I hope you understand by this, I'm not saying now, okay, now everyone go out and fast this afternoon. Don't, I know you had lunch plans. You're gonna have to stop the crock pot and, and you know, just, just put that off for now. No, I'm not saying that. I hope you understand that this is an attitude and a posture that we see as humble Christians that come to God longing for him to do something. So we recognize, how then should we fast? How should this be something that actually um, characterizes his people? Well, I would probably go back and say the same things that the Old Testament has told us. Uh, lament, struggle, difficulties. We fast in sorrow at points. But we also fast when we are coming to a decision that we need guidance for God to do this. This is all over the book of Acts. We watch this happen and we see that the disciples and those who were elders prayed and fasted asking that God would give them guidance. And he did. We see it over and over again throughout this way. We also, and I said this just briefly at the beginning, that fasting is also sometimes a test. Now, what am I saying here? What I'm really asking is, or saying is that fasting is also a test to see what we really love. So when you fast, if you try it sometime, you're going to realize how often you think about yourself and your stomach. If you fast from something else, maybe it's from technology or from media or something else in your life, you're going to realize pretty quickly how often you hope in the coming meal. You hope that you're going to be filled. You can almost taste that pizza that's going to come at dinner time. Or you look forward to that. And those are good things. In the act of fasting, it tests us to see what is actually most important to us. What are our loves? And calls us to see Christ as the one who truly fulfills us. Why he says, I am the bread of life. We recognize that in him are all is our, in a sense, all our, not only our spiritual nutrition, but all of our ultimate nutrition is in him and him alone. And so we see this act of fasting as one that's feasting on God in faith, but also testing our own emotions and struggles, and we want it to reveal the sin that's going on inside of us. David Mathis says this, Christian fasting seeks to take the pains of hunger and transpose them into the key of some eternal anthem, whether it's fighting against some sin or pleading for someone's salvation 
or for the cause of the unborn, longing for a greater taste of Jesus and his return. This should, in a way, characterize us as those that love Jesus Christ and his coming. Now, let me finish out, excuse me, by going back to Philippians 3, where we started. What, what, what empowers all this? Philippians 3, 7 and 8, right? I told you we'd be back there. Look at verse 7. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, we know the context when he says, whatever gain I had, he's actually talking about his own righteousness. He's talking about all the good stuff that he has done. You don't think that Paul had an impressive resume? I mean, just look at verses four through six, and you'll see. If anyone had a reason to have confidence, he had an impressive resume. He was circumcised the eighth day, people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You don't think that Paul did some good works in his life? He was the man at good works. He had an impressive resume of doing righteous stuff. But it's after all that that he says this. Guys, whatever gain I had and all that I just told you, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Uh, do you get what he is talking about here? What he means then? Paul was the man that told Timothy and Titus to devote themselves to good works and train in godliness. This Paul is saying that all of this striving apart from Jesus is absolutely worthless. When he compared his righteous actions, his excellent pedigree, his zeal and passion for doing what God told him to do, when he compared all those good actions to the new reality, the new reality of knowing Jesus Christ the Messiah, all of those glorious works dissipated into rubbish, into nothing, into garbage, worthless material that was worthless in the kingdom of God. Fasting is not something that makes God happy with us guys. We recognize that it comes and is born out of a hunger for him. We recognize that we can't put the cart before the horse. If we do so, we've totally missed the worth of Jesus Christ. Our fasting doesn't equal more merit and righteousness. It is Christ in Christ alone, strangely enough, that pulls us back towards fasting, that would cause us to therefore deny ourselves in these ways so that we might have more God. And so when we fast, we feast on God through faith. Let us then learn to believe these words that Paul says, that Jesus Christ truly is of surpassing worth and of more than uh, ample food and nutrition for our hearts and souls and lives so that we might know him in the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. I know this has been a long one, but I thank you for the word that you've given us. And I ask that you would change us to make us more like Christ. Lord, I pray that you would increase our hunger for you. Lord, that we would not be satisfied with the world's stuff and food and pleasure, but Lord, that we would, we, would, we would hunger for Jesus. We thank you for your grace and all that you have given to us and ask you to bless us. Uh, we thank you for um, your word and we pray your blessing on your people. In Jesus' name we pray.